0: The most important theme that came up was really visibility or lack thereof. And every single donor that I spoke to said to me, look, we know that the cause of female domestic abuse is big and it's really serious, but we've never considered giving to it. Or we've never considered giving to it in any major way. And I was really interested in why that was, because actually in terms of media coverage, it's increased, particularly since the pandemic where it is possible and appropriate, bringing that donor up close to the beneficiary, I think it is without a doubt the most powerful thing you can do. We actually managed to raise £350,000 from these 25 high-value runners, 2017 Virgin Money London Marathon, which is actually quite extraordinary. You know, I think the average is, what is it, about 2500 for for a runner normally.
1: Hello Brave Fundraisers, it's Rob Woods here and welcome back to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is episode 140. This is the podcast for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas and maybe a little dose of inspiration to help you enjoy your job and raise more money. So first of all, I know full well that fundraising is sometimes difficult wherever you work. But that said, If you work for a cause which is less likely to be perceived as popular or worthy of support, if those you serve are often misunderstood, misrepresented, or just plain ignored, then I hope you're going to find this episode helpful and encouraging. Because today I'm sharing a chat I recorded recently with a very smart and experienced fundraiser named Sarah Jane O'Neill, who recently completed a Masters in Philanthropy at the University of Kent where her thesis delved deep into understanding barriers to philanthropic giving for charities to do with domestic violence against women. In our chat, Sarah Jane shares some of her top-line findings. And then we're going to spend most of the episode exploring things you can do to increase your chances of fundraising success if you work for a cause which feels less cuddly or popular to many people. I found it really interesting to get the chance to explore this important topic with Sarah Jane. She shares some great examples and I hope you find it helpful too. Hello, Sarah-Jane. How are you? Hello, Rob. I'm very well, thank you. It's lovely to see you. Yeah, lovely to see you. I really enjoyed our chat the other day, and I've been looking forward to this recording for the podcast. And in a moment, we'll get into what it's all about. But just before we do, for context, you've worked in the sector for, goodness knows, uh, at least 15 years, I think. I met you some time ago on a course, and you've worked for various different causes, some larger, some smaller some potentially more popular, attractive causes, and certainly some less so. And we'll get on to why that's relevant to today's interview in a moment. And for the last five years, you've been running your own consultancy, Sarah Jane O'Neill Consulting. And the reason I was especially keen to chat was you were telling me some very interesting findings from your thesis you did for your master's So just for context, what's the qualification you've just completed and then what's the nature or the title of that thesis?
0: So it's an MA in Philanthropic Studies at the University of Kent and the title of the thesis was The Invisibility of Domestic Abuse for High Net Worth Giving, Replacing Metrics of Morality.
1: Thank you, Sarah-Jane. In a moment, let's unpack what the thrust of that research was all about. In terms of today's conversation, We are going to start off finding out the gist of those findings because I think not enough people have really looked into this before uh, in terms of what can be hard about major donor fundraising for certain types of cause. And then we're going to broaden it out into if you're a fundraiser for any kind of cause which feels less mainstream, less universally attractive or popular, then what are some things that you as a fundraiser can quite deliberately do to, I guess, overcome the odds or defy the odds and do well in spite of those challenges? But if we could start with the research, what was it all about and what were a couple of the key things you discovered?
0: So I did this research really because it's such a misunderstood area. And in fact, I spent a lot of time looking to see if I could find any research that was going to answer the kind of questions that I wanted to pose and I didn't find anything which I think in itself speaks volumes so I wanted to know why was it that high net worth people were not making financial contributions in any significant way to female domestic abuse services what the barriers might be and how if we kind of morally reframe the cause would that help in increased giving so it was a small qualitative piece of research. So a small sample, 14 people. I interviewed seven fundraisers in the domestic abuse sector, and I interviewed seven major donors. My remit was it was anybody who gave a gift of more than five thousand um, pounds. But actually, I had people within that pool who had given seven figures. So it was quite a quite a broad range. And I just posed a series of, of questions that you know um, to them. And what I found was extremely interesting. I came up with eight different themes, and they can be kind of categorized into the sort of four main areas one is the idea of scarcity um, one is the idea of personal responsibility one is othering and one is what I call tools of patriarchal control so I think for the purpose of this conversation it would be interesting maybe just to look at three of those I mean they are very interconnected um, but the most important theme that came up was really visibility or lack thereof And every single donor that I spoke to said to me, look, we know that the cause of female domestic abuse is big and it's really serious, but we've never considered giving to it. We've never considered giving to it in any major way. And I was really interested in why that was, because actually, in terms of media coverage, it's increased, particularly since the pandemic. Um, And although a lot of reporting is still very poor. So what I found was there was this really kind of dual forces taking place that were acting as barriers to the visibility. And that was the barriers of the patriarchy and the barriers of neoliberalism. I can talk a little bit about that in a minute. And the other uh, area that I wanted to talk about was othering. And that came up quite a lot. So the idea that this causes something that happens to other people. Um, and although everybody that I spoke to intellectually understood that it was something that could happen to anybody, they felt that there was a mental shortcut that people might have been making, that this was actually a low economic class issue. So the kind of cliche of woman in a council flat with six kids and husband comes home angry on a Saturday night, that that was where people's heads were going. And that was creating a disconnect. And actually, that was making it harder for people to make an empathetic leap. The other area that was very interesting was shame. And I think if, if I had the energy to do a PhD, Rob, well, which I absolutely don't, I think the relationship between shame and giving is, is really interesting. But everybody that I, that I spoke to said that they felt very uncomfortable with images of victimhood. There was something about the trope of an abused woman that really hooked into a very dark place in our psyche that people were very uncomfortable with. And what they wanted to see was the after picture. They wanted to see stories of hope and empowerment rather than victimhood. So those three things I thought were were really interesting. And if I could just kind of hang this on some sort of broader theories that I think really help with any cause that is challenging or unpopular. Um, there is a, there's an academic called, called Paul Shervis who writes a lot about major donor motivations. And he talks about three particular areas that I think are very relevant for this topic. And one is the idea of empathetic identification. So everybody really does give generally from a sense of personal affinity. So the idea of empathetic identification means that a major donor will give somewhere where they have been, or where they are likely to go, or somewhere where they have hyperagency. And that basically just simply means the ability to change your life and and the lives of people around you. Which, incidentally, that's the only difference between a major donor and any other kind of donor. They have the power to do that in a way that other people don't. The second area is a framework of consciousness, which is a donor's fundamental value system. And that is what you are aligning yourself with. And that can also be a barrier as well. And then the third area is this idea of abundant associational capital. And that's just simply social capital. And that very much came out of my research was that, you know, there is not a lot of social capital in the subject of domestic abuse. And there isn't in a lot of, you know, unpopular causes. Social capital is just simply, you know, the need for people to be belong to a collective that um, is, has a societal value where they are among their peers. Those three things are really difficult. So with domestic abuse, you know, the idea of empathetic identification is actually a really interesting one because you can be living in a four-story townhouse in Mayfair and still be a victim of domestic abuse. And this happens. And if you think that one in four women in this country will experience this at some point in their lives, you know, the stats are there to say that this is in close proximity to every potential major donor's life, but yet they're still not necessarily stepping up. So visibility, othering and shame are the three things that I think are really interesting to look at.
1: Thank you ever so much, Sarah-Jane. I would love to get your sense, given those three particular difficulties, I wonder if you can remember certain things you've done as a fundraiser across your career for various causes, which have been not easy to raise money for, that You've managed to succeed in spite of those difficulties. And and hopefully then for our listeners, we might give some encouragement to the challenges that they face. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think a good example is when I worked at Stonewall. I joined Stonewall at a very interesting time. It was 2013. The Marriage Equality Act had just come in. And so there wasn't really any um, major legislative hook to hang things on anymore. It was all about really stigma and changing hearts and minds. And we had this cohort of wealthy, largely white, largely male LGBT donors who were doing okay. They were living good lives now. And I wanted to kind of connect them with other LGBT people in other parts of the world who were not having that same experience. And what I did was I put together an event and we brought in a group of Russian LGBT activists, young sort of teenagers, early 20s, who were participating on a Stonewall training course. And the event had a real frisson because obviously we had to be really private because we had to protect their security. A lot of them didn't speak English, they were speaking through a translator, and I wanted them to be able to tell their stories in this quite an intimate Safe setting. And so we had this one young woman, she was in her late teens, and she told this story through a a translator that a few weeks ago her and her friends had been out in a nightclub and they were on the dance floor having a great time. And then suddenly they started smelling this really, really horrible smell. And they realised that they were being gassed and that the whole nightclub was being gassed and that they had to get out really quickly. So, can you imagine? Telling that story in a in an event with with donors because actually these people could have been their children you know we did that event it was really successful and then we got a one of the donors gave a twenty five thousand pounds gift the following week towards training more activists as part of that program but I felt it was really important not that. I don't think the donors were necessarily othering them in, in the same way. But I think it was really important to bring those people in close proximity to each other and for that story to come out of their mouth, even if it wasn't Russian, you know, because it was so shocking. And it gave the idea of, OK, I'm, I'm OK. You know, I can go out to Soho and go to a nightclub, but this young person can't. And and what can I do to try and ameliorate that situation? So eliminating othering is really all about bringing that donor up close to the the beneficiary, if it's possible. Sometimes it isn't always possible, but where it is possible and appropriate, I think it is without a doubt the most powerful thing you can do.
1: And uh, to an extent, you just are making those people more visible in a context where before they weren't visible as well.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it ties into visibility as well. And also it tied into the social capital because it was this glamorous house with people that they wanted to be with. It really hit all three of those areas. And I think that's probably why it why it worked.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if you have any more examples of t- or strategies we can quite deliberately do, even if to an extent they seem obvious to an experienced fundraiser?
0: I guess this is another Stonewall story. And, and I think this really ties into this idea of don't focus on how difficult something is. Focus on what you can bring to the donor that is of value, that enables them to reach some kind of form of self actualization So when I say that, what I mean is, you are giving somebody an opportunity to do something that they're not going to be able to do in the boardroom, they're not going to do on their yacht or on their helicopter. It's a really special opportunity where they can really fulfil their potential. And one of the things that I did, and this still goes down as the best day I've ever had in my career was when I took Stonewall Ambassador to a secondary school in South East London. She was was actually a former actress. So she was incredibly articulate in her story. She told this really funny, moving story. And she opened up the floor for questions. And there was a small group of kids in the audience who were from um, a very evangelical Christian background. They were quite, they were probably about 11. So they'd had a certain set of Values that have probably been instilled in them by their parents. They may have not knowingly ever even met an LGBT person in their lives. And and this little boy's hand shot up and he said, I do have a question, actually. How do you feel about Sodom and Gomorrah? And the whole hall went completely silent. We thought, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? And she said, well, how do you feel about Sodom and Gomorrah? And they started having this really human conversation. And what happened was by the end of the event, this little boy went up to her, put his arms around her and asked whether he could have his photograph taken with her. And it was just such a moment of kind of acceptance, you know, and all the teachers were, you know, really moved by it because he'd been so hostile towards her and she had been able to really knock down those barriers. Um, So that is really another visibility issue. If you can, if you can get somebody in front of somebody to disabuse them of what their prejudices might be, that can be really, really powerful. And one of the things that I love about doing this work is that you are a conduit to two things. You're a conduit to, you know, obviously you're raising money and you're helping a beneficiary, but you're also helping that donor. And, you know, even if you only have a small platform, it doesn't have to be a big flashy event. It's just giving somebody an opportunity to tell their story.
1: What an excellent example. And like I said earlier, there's lots of different causes, which sometimes become a little bit more in the mainstream. And it seems to me that one of those might be mental health, mental well-being type causes. And yeah, very much so. I know I know you, you worked for a, a charity in that space at one point at a time when it was less talked about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. There was a a piece of research done by Beth Breeze and Ali Boddy at the University of Kent, which is all about unpopular causes and what the barriers are. They created a top 10 list of unpopular causes based on how it was being perceived in the UK media. And then you can argue the the robustness of that as a research method, but it's an interesting place to start. And actually, in 2016, according to this piece of research, mental health was the, the most unpopular cause going, which is hard to believe now. I joined the Heads Together campaign in 2017. And for people that, that don't remember that, that was a mental health awareness campaign that was spearheaded by the then Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Prince Harry out of the Royal Foundation. And it brought together a, a coalition of mental health charities, some of which were not very well known and are much better known now. And the idea was going to create a series of events and moments leading up to the 2017 Virgin Money London Marathon. And I was brought in to put together and steward a a team of high value runners. I I put together 25 people. I had the most incredible range of people, some of whom weren't experiencing mental health issues. And at that point, we weren't really talking about it in the way that we do now. And the whole premise of the campaign was about changing the conversation on mental health. And so what we were able to do for these donors was to give them a platform where they could talk about their feelings, they, they could blog, they could come to events and talk. We had a lot of press. I mean, obviously this was a very big campaign, and but we actually managed to raise 350,000 pound from these 25 people. I mean, which is actually quite extraordinary when you think about, you know, I think the average is, what is it, about two and a half thousand for a runner normally. These major donors, they had incredible networks. They were able to, to raise more money. And also we had the power of that campaign behind us. I think that there's real power in these very visceral subjects. They may be very painful and and personal for people, but there is real power. And I think you should embrace that power as well, as well as what you, like you say, you know, understanding that things are not static. Things change, things might be unpopular one day, and then the next day they might become zeitgeist and you get to ride that wave. And if you're the kind of person that, that likes that, then you can do really well.
1: Hi, it's Rob. And I wanted to briefly let you know that our two flagship in-person training programmes, that's the Major Gifts Mastery Programme and the Corporate Partnerships Mastery Programme, start again from November 2023. These programmes help you make serious progress through a blend of masterclasses with me, individual coaching support and a bunch of other resources for six months. To give you a sense of how they work, here's a clip from Jessica Minnis from the British Heart Foundation who took part in our Major Gifts Mastery Programme last year. It was, I
0: think, one of the best decisions I've made in terms of investment in me as a as a major gift fundraiser. And of course, I'm really, really pleased to have gone on. One of the primary benefits has been my confidence and the increase I've seen in that. The way that I approach my role and approach my portfolio and, and meetings with prospects has improved so much. I've secured so many more meetings with people, learned so much more about my prospects and my donors just by picking up the phone. And one great win that I've had from this is that I solicited a a £50,000 pledge from someone who was previously very unresponsive. To find
1: out more about either Major Gifts Mastery or Corporate Partnerships Mastery, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. And if you have any questions, do get in touch. I just wanted to pick up on something else you were saying there, this notion of all of these causes are important, even if at a given point in time, Mainstream society slash media slash the noisiest people out there or certain newspapers, certain right-wing newspapers are not on your side. All of them are important, and it seems to me that there's some psychology we can potentially make use of linked to something I've talked about before. Our listeners might know this theme of The Obstacle is the Way and Ryan Holiday's book of that name. The key idea behind that idea is... The very thing that makes your life or your fundraising hard, we're not going to discount it. We agree it is hard. And yet rather than survive it, somehow get through it, survive in spite of it. Ryan Holiday's point is, can the very thing that makes it difficult in that, can you find an advantage? And there's various examples I've talked about before. I talked about um, a brilliant fundraiser at Greenpeace called Paula, who's a face to face fundraiser who during the lockdowns of 2020 managed to get her door-to-door fundraising team out the door and knocking on doors, even while six foot back social distancing was a thing. And most would say, well, that makes it even harder for you ever to have a conversation with people. Well, they took that, they used it and they created these beautiful, colourful, inspiring six foot long mats they would roll back and put on people's doorsteps that had a picture of a, a a gorgeous orangutan with his arms open. So the six foot that should have made it harder, they turned it into an advantage. And their campaign in the summer of 2020 raised 20% more than their campaign had the previous summer when there was no lockdown and there was no social distancing. So I love these examples where we can find some actual advantage that actually means we can do better in spite of the understandable difficulties. And it seems to me, if and when things are especially hard, like in a a sports team, if you have a person sent off, and just at the time of recording, it's the Men's Rugby World Cup, and a couple of weeks ago, the England men's rugby team played their best game in two or three years – when they were playing against Argentina, who in that game were fancied to win, and when they played the in, almost the entire game with one man down. And on interview, n- numerous players said, it's because we were really up against it. We just had to bond together differently and help each other out. And it seems to me that the more mainstream media or certain critics ignore, shun or misrepresent you, If you're proactive about it and canny about it, there's potential to use that adversity to bond colleagues and teams within a cause and solve normal barriers and silos and difficulties in a way that normally would be hard and would be harder for a, a quote, easier cause. The other one that occurs to me is um, the way r n l i and some of our listeners might might not think that's the most challenging cause, but in the face of fierce and I would say pretty unpleasant criticism from right wing people like nigel farage the the way a, one enterprising volunteer fundraiser created a crowdfunder poking fun at Farage and and wanted to raise money for a for a lifeboat that would even have Farage's name poking fun at him on the boat. And it raised last time I looked more than 200 grand. It's this notion of help them throw rocks at their enemies is one of the most persuasive things we can do. And I'm not saying it's easy and I don't want to discount the difficulties for many of the causes listening. But I wonder if there's an extent to which we can harness the understandable unfairness with which to solve other fundraising problems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, philanthropy in some ways exists to be in part to be like the irritation in the pearl. And also it's about embracing the donor that's the maverick, you know, find sometimes find the donor that wants to disrupt, wants to be the disruptor, you know, rather than the the donor that necessarily wants to maintain the status quo. And I think that's in a way that's what's exciting about the philanthropy of the future. If you think about how Generation X and millennial donors are and, and and the way in which they live their lives which is, is very different from older donors it's about um, an alignment of values you know y- your work and your personal life and your giving are not three separate things they're all part of the same story and what you're interested in is 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 not having your name on a building necessarily it's about being part of a movement and i think that that speaks very positively for unpopular causes and for social justice causes
1: yeah and I remember when Damien Chapman came on this podcast two or three years ago and he talked about the time when he took over as a fundraiser for Police Care UK and working out where to start and most of the charities he had worked with before at some level had seemed to catch more public attention as a worthy cause. And once he got there, my goodness, he heard some amazing examples of just how important the cause was for serving and former members of the police force and their families. So he and the rest of the team were unequivocally determined to serve that cause, but his challenge was not everybody he talked to in a cafe or on the street would necessarily instantly get it, and some of the theme of that interview for how he recruited a lot of corporate partners, something like 18, 20 corporate partners he recruited in that first year... And he did it by accepting we won't be loved by everybody instinctively, but really embracing the niche, searching for what are the 1% of companies for whom the company and their and their customers and their staff, they will care instinctively about this as an important cause. And I know that's so obvious for good corporate fundraisers listening, the importance of not trying to appeal to everybody, but getting super clear on which kind of companies would we appeal to. And yet that need for segmentation, the power of leaning into the niche, I think is always going to be an element of how a fundraiser at a cause that is not universally popular, might make inroads and make really good progress but it's it's okay that not everyone will love us but my goodness we, how can we proactively go more and more to those who do get it
0: yeah absolutely and i think the other thing is you know we're talking about the framing of the story if you've got a subject that you know feels quite dark um I think it's really important to find the points of light in your calls. And that can sometimes be about thinking quite laterally about it.
1: Mm. And I wonder, before we finish, if there's any last idea that you think in practical terms might be useful to our listeners?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the really important thing about being a major gift fundraiser is not about you know, whether you've got a big job title or whether you're line managing loads of people or whether you're, you know, on the top table. It's really your power lies in the speed in which a major donor will return your call or return your email. Or is that's all about your ability to build trust and rapport. And I think, you know, what, and it's really important to say this, you know, I've I've got this master's and it's been one of the best things I've ever done. But you absolutely do not need to have an academic qualification of that ilk. Why I'm probably hired um, is really my ability to to hustle, you know, my ability to to get out there, to be tenacious, to get in front of people. Because, you know, you don't raise money sitting behind your desk. You raise money getting out there and engaging with people and bringing people up close to the to the cause. And that is, you know, that does take a lot of kind of courage and get up and go. But I think if you're in a cause that is you know difficult or challenging it's even more important to be somebody who is willing to get up there and and really hustle you have to do that so i think that would be my my kind of big takeaway is that you know have the courage to to, to get out there and make things happen it doesn't matter what your job is because actually you have the power to really build that that trust and rapport just with, with your own personality so I think that would be my
1: main takeaway. Fabulous advice, Sarah Jane. And listeners to this podcast know that relatively often I talk about the importance of not so much worrying about the money or the partnerships or the big idea for the next appeal, but today, how can I, in some way, increase the chances of getting more actual conversations? with people who care about our cause, forgetting about people who don't care so much, but there are some people, whatever cause you serve, who do care deeply. But as long as communication is relatively remote, certainly in the high value space, it's likely to be hard to inspire them to give. So game one is how on earth can I, in some way, get more conversations with these people or get more of them to come to our inspiring event? And how can I be creative and brave in leaving no stone unturned in making that happen. So thank you ever so much for that final point, Sarah-Jane. Thank you for all these ideas. It's such an interesting and important topic because fundraising for lots and lots of causes I know is difficult. I really appreciate the fact that you've come along to share both the findings of your research and these wider pieces of advice. Uh, I know that you're currently investigating ways to get that thesis published do let us know when that happens. And in the meantime, we'll put a link to your website in the episode notes. But for now, Sarah-Jane, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you, Rob. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Well, I hope you found our chat helpful. As usual, I'll put some episode notes and a full transcript of the show in the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. If you're not yet following the Fundraising Bright Spot show, please hit that follow button now so you can keep getting access to more of these stories, tips and ideas. And if you're a major donor or a corporate fundraiser and you're determined to lift your results in the next 12 months, at the time of recording this in mid-October 2023, there are still a handful of places left for the upcoming Major Gifts Mastery Programme and Corporate Partnerships Mastery Programme, which start again in November 2023. To find out more, check out our website, Just before we finish, I'd like to ask a quick favour, which is, if you enjoyed today's episode and you think it would help other people and other important but perhaps less popular causes, then please do take a moment to share it on with your team or on social media. Sarah Jane and I would love to know what you think about today's episode. You can get in touch or tag us on LinkedIn and on X or Twitter. Sarah Jane is at S underscore j o'neill and i am at Woods underscore rob thank you for listening today i know that fundraising can be hard wherever you work so irrespective of where anyone else would place your cause in terms of popular appeal thank you for plugging away to make a difference today